Hello, Sex Appeal listeners. This is Kit Elliott, one of your hosts for this show. After an extended hiatus, Katie and I have reassessed our stance on the true crime genre as entertainment and the way it affects the real-world victims involved in these cases. While this show has always striven to highlight injustices and prejudice in our society and legal system over anything else, we still want to make some changes to assure absolutely no harm comes from the stories we tell here. So, now, Sex Appeal Women on Trial will focus solely on historic true crime cases. That is, trials that took place a minimum of 150 years ago. All of our episodes already posted over the years that discuss cases that do not meet this new criteria have been removed, which is the main reason for this announcement. Because several episodes were deleted in their entirety, some remaining episodes may contain references to something said in one of them. We apologize for any confusion or continuity problems this creates. We hope you can understand the reasoning behind this decision. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Please be advised that this episode contains details and discussion of violence, including assault against a minor and gruesome methods of execution. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Sex Appeal Women on Trial. I'm Kit. And I'm not Katie. Oh, hello there, new person. (laughs) That's right, if you follow us on Instagram or Twitter, you already know that Katie will be taking this week off because she is sick. Gross. But it's okay because it means that I have a very special guest joining me for today's episode. So everyone, meet my bestest friend, Jessie. Hello there. Okay, but here's a way to make sure you hate me for the rest of our lives. Since Katie made Finn do this when she filled in for me, tell us a fun fact about yourself. I hate you. <laughs> I expected it. Um, I have an uncanny ability to pick out Jasper from any rock collection. <laughs> good. That's the best fact. <laughs> Thank you for being a good sport about it. So you guys may remember that last month I told you all about Anne Boleyn and her life and death relating to our favorite guy, (sighs) good old King Henry VIII. Well, today we're going to talk even more about the bad (coughs) Katie said no swearing. Bad dude. Good self-restraint. Thank you. I try. If you need a refresher, let's do a speed run. King Henry VIII to six wives he was wedded, one died to survive to... (laughs) Yeah, here we go. That's that. King Henry VIII to six wives he was wedded, one died, one survived to divorce to beheaded. This dude married six women, only one of them made it. And spoiler, that's only because he died before she did. He's gross, we hate him. There, now you're caught up. The woman we're focusing on today was the fifth wife of Henry VIII, Catherine Howard. And like Anne Boleyn, she falls into the beheaded category. I mentioned in the Anne Boleyn episode that three of the wives were named Catherine. Dude had a type. So if the other two come up at any point, I'll refer to them by their first and last names, but if I just say Catherine, you can assume it's Howard. And even though Katie isn't here, we still have to say we do not condone crime here on Sex Appeal. We don't? (laughs) But gosh darn, don't we love a good story. Let's get started. Catherine Howard is believed to have been born in Lambeth, England, sometime around 1521. Because, as we know, accurate documents weren't really a thing back then. 
After the death of her mother, Jocasta, Catherine was sent to live with her grandmother, Agnes Howard, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk. She lived with other wards around her age, learning to read and write, along with music and dancing. Typical things for fairly well-off young girls of the time. And yet most of them don't sound particularly useful. Unless you plan on living in high society, that is. But we're going to backtrack just a little to the year before, 1527. You might remember that this was the year that King Henry VIII... Ugh. This is just going to be our response whenever we have to say his name. Sorry, I don't make the rules. This was the year that he asked Anne Boleyn to be his mistress, an offer which she refused. Good for her! This is relevant for two main reasons. It kickstarted the timeline of Boleyn's eventful reign as queen, but also because she and Catherine were actually cousins. Because their lives intertwine pretty integrally, I'm going to occasionally throw in what Anne was doing at any given point in time throughout Catherine's life. In 1531, while Catherine was living with the Dowager Duchess, Anne helped Catherine's father get the position of Controller of Calais. Oh, so they're like close family, not just distant cousins? Nope. First cousins. Kind of makes you think, doesn't it? In 1536, Catherine had a notable sexual relationship with her music teacher, Henry Mannix. And when I say relationship, I mean that he took advantage of his position of power over her while she was still a child. No older than 15 by this point. But people still counted as proof of her promiscuity. In reality, she was a victim of child grooming, and if any of you try to argue with me on this, I absolutely will throw hands. Anyways, this was the same year that Anne was executed for treason, and Henry VIII ugh, ugh. married Jane Seymour. Meanwhile, Catherine began another relationship, don't get me started, with the secretary of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, Francis Durham. Disgusting. Agreed. This is also the year that Henry VIII Ugh. And Jane Seymour had a son, but both the baby and Jane died soon after the birth. Things are starting to get real bad real fast before Catherine even gets there. Don't worry, though. As we all know by now, things only get worse. In 1538, Henry Mannix found out about Catherine and Francis Derham's relationship and, acting out of jealousy, sent an anonymous letter to the Dowager Duchess. Remember, Derham still worked for her. About the whole affair. Anonymous? Coward. Right? Square up, dude. If you have something to say, put your name on it like an adult. Deerham ended up returning to Ireland after the relationship was discovered, but made it clear that he still wanted to marry Catherine when he came back to England. I mean, at least he's not near her anymore? For now. Catherine's father, Edmund, died in 1539, and because she wasn't married, she ended up under the protection although let's be real, it was control, of her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk. During this time, she met Thomas Culpepper, a distant relative of her mother, and attraction ensued. She was chosen as a lady-in-waiting for Anne of Cleves, who ended up marrying Henry VIII ugh, the following year. I feel this is the part in a horror movie where you're screaming at the screen and telling the protagonist to turn back before it's too late. Same, especially because in 1540, she caught the eye of none other than... Wait, let me guess. Ugh! Yep, you got it. And the same is with all of the other women he married. This was the beginning of the end. I feel like a lot of people want to picture this as some aesthetically passionate affair with flowing dresses, secret rendezvous, and wide, sweeping camera shots. 
but in reality, he is a sick, both physically and mentally, 50-year-old man, and she is still under 20 and just trying to live her life in her new position. The Howard family found out about it all and, being against the Protestant Reformation, hoped that if Catherine married him, then he would return to Catholicism along with the rest of the nation. So they encouraged her to get Henry to fall in love with her. Of course, because she was a charming, beautiful young lady giving him attention, Henry VIII ugh, ugh. did just that. The two got married within the year, which meant that he had to end his marriage with Anne of Cleves, which was a whole separate ordeal that basically boils down to the fact that he is a piece of garbage with too much power, so he was able to find some ridiculous excuse as to why he could annul their marriage, and I just have so much to say about Anne of Cleves and how she got majorly screwed over, but this episode isn't about her, so please just look up her story because she is baby and I will die on that hill. And so, Catherine Howard officially married the king. Hi everyone, Sick Katie here, and it's time for Let's Learn Something New. You may be thinking, Katie, why are you recording this? You should be sleeping so you won't be sick anymore. And you're right. However, Kit didn't really have anything for this episode, and I really want to talk about something that I've learned while I visited the Tower of London over the summer. Today, we'll talk about how the English monarchy thought it would be pretty dope to have a zoo in the Tower of London for 600 years. That means while both Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard were waiting for execution, there was a lion just around the corner from them. According to the official Tower of London website, from the 1200s to 1835, the tower housed several exotic wild animals that were never seen by the people of London and that were given as royal gifts. There were lions, tigers, kangaroos, camels, leopards, wolves, zebras, alligators, monkeys, and a polar bear. That's right, a polar bear, who was muzzled and chained, but was able to swim in the moat. What was the diet of these many carnivores? Oh, just leftover meat and sometimes stray animals like cats and dogs. Now, we could go on about the treatment of these animals, but they weren't the only ones who were in moral danger. Anyone from the public could have had easy access to these animals. Sometime in the 18th century, a visitor named Mary Jenkinson had her flesh torn from the bone when she decided to pet a lion's paw. Now, I don't want to say it was her fault, but... Anyway, another time, a hungry boa constrictor wrapped itself around zookeeper Alfred Copps. Two of his assistants had rushed in and break the snake's teeth before it could harm cops even more. In the year 1826, the Duke of Wellington decided that things weren't working out for the zoo and decided to dispatch 150 of the animals to a new home in Regmitz Park. After 600 years, the zoo closed for good in 1835. Many of the remaining animals were sold to other zoos or traveling circuses. In 2010, artist Kendra Hayes was commissioned by the historic Royal Palace to create 13 wire sculptures of the more famous animals, such as the lions, baboons, elephant, and of course, the polar bear. This has been Let's Learn Something New, and now back to our regularly scheduled crime talk. The year following their marriage, Henry VIII fell sick from a pre-existing condition and stopped allowing Catherine to see him, which meant she was left her own devices for a bit. She spent this free time away from her gross husband with people her own age, 
and rumors began flying around that she was having affairs with other men, including a man named Thomas Culpepper. Hmm, mentioned him before. The momentary break from her life ended, though, when Henry unfortunately started feeling better, and the two moved north of England for a bit. Still, she continued seeing Thomas Culpepper with the help of Lady Jane Rochford, who held the position of Lady of the Chamber, sort of a personal assistant and built-in friend that you have to pay. Oh, and remember Francis Derham? I'd rather not. Catherine appointed him as her private secretary. I can't see that ending well. It most certainly does not. John Lassell, a reformist who was not happy about the whole Catholicism thing that the Howards were bringing back, told Archbishop Thomas Cranmer about Catherine's past relationships in an attempt to bring her down. Cranmer sent Henry VIII a letter explaining what he had learned, but the king didn't believe the accusations. But instead of just letting it go, he sent out what was basically a PI to investigate. Meanwhile, Cranmer went out and interviewed people who knew Catherine, or knew of her. No possible way that that's going to result in skewed information. Henry Mannix and Francis Derham were among those who were questioned and Durham admitted that he'd had an affair with Catherine while she was queen, and implicated Thomas Culpepper as well. Culpepper made the same admission. This information was given to the king, and he, no surprise, freaked out. He sent Catherine to be confined at Hampton Court in southwest London, while he left for Whitehall Palace in Dublin. Cranmer and the Duke of Norfolk went to Hampton Court to question Catherine. When she's completely alone with no sort of legal counsel, I might add. She claimed innocence at first, but pretty quickly admitted to having committed adultery. This was exactly what they needed, and on November 12, 1541, she was arrested on the charge of treason and moved to Sion House in Brentford. By November 22nd, Henry approved the removal of her status as queen. Deerham and Culpepper were both tried for treason on December 1st, pled guilty, and were sentenced to death. So on December 10th, they faced execution. Culpepper by beheading, and Deerham by being hung, drawn, and quartered. Which, side note, is actually way more gruesome than I thought it was. The person would be strapped to a wooden board and brought to the place of execution by horse, hanged almost to the point of death, then tied up, had different appendages cut off, disemboweled, and yeah, at that point you're pretty sufficiently dead. Then they would be cut into four pieces, which would be brought to specific locations to serve as warning. What the fudge sickles? See, Katie, we're behaving. In the beginning of 1542, Catherine was told that she was being moved to the Tower of London and reportedly became hysterical. Yeah, I'd think so. So she was taken to the Tower by force. She was dressed in black and transported by water. Jesse, can you read the quote? The imperial ambassador, Eusus Shipoyus, sorry if that's wrong, later wrote, The Lord Privy Seal, with the number of privy councillors and servants, went first in the great barge, and then came the queen with three or four men and as many ladies in a small covered barge, then the Duke of Suffolk in a great barge with a company of his men. As they passed under London Bridge, the severed heads of Durham and Culpepper were displayed for her to see. Yikes. The biggest yikes. <laughs> By the time she arrived at the prison chamber, she had already been deemed guilty, but was not told when her execution would be. So imagine dealing with that uncertainty for days. During this wait, she requested for a block similar to the one she would be placed on to be brought to her, so, quote, 
that she might know how to place herself. Finally, on the evening of February 12th, she was told to dispose of her soul and prepare for death. That seems extreme. Yep. At 9 a.m. the next morning, February 13th, 1542, Catherine Howard was beheaded on Tower Green. Otwell Johnson, a merchant who was present at the execution, wrote a letter to his brother describing how she, quote, made the most godly and Christian end, and told how she had asked, all Christian people to take regard unto her worth and just punishment with death for her offenses against God and heinously from her youth upward in bringing all of his commandments and also against the king's royal majesty very dangerously. Her body was buried at the chapel of St. Peter and Vincula. And that concludes the story of Catherine Howard. There was one more wife after her, but luckily she was the one who survived. And Henry... Ugh, wasn't. He died. <laughs> yeah, we, we're allowed to celebrate the death of a gross human, right? Absolutely. Good. <laughs> Any final thoughts, Jesse? I mean, generally, marrying men seems gross, but this particular man. <laughs> men in general, gross. This particular man. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, um lesson from the episode men are trash thank you <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of sex appeal and thank you to jesse for filling in for us You're very well <laughs> make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you always know when to come back for more cases of women on trial sex appeal women on trial was brought to you by us kit elliott and katie clark music is dark tranquility by anno domini beats Special thanks to Framingham State University's WDJM Radio. We would like to thank Malin Costello from MC Design Photography for creating our logo. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram under mcdesign underscore photography. Remember to leave a five-star rating and review us on iTunes. And follow us on Instagram at sexappealpodcast and Twitter at sexappealpod. You can also visit our website, sexappealpodcast.weebly.com, for additional content, including more details about our episodes, like written transcriptions and pictures. If you have any questions about our show or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at sexappealpod at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs>